Hey Moth family, save the date for the Moth main stage on Saturday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join us and host Jonathan Ames for an evening of stories as five storytellers take the virtual stage and share a true personal tale from their life. Stories of glory and defeat, taunting fate, laughing in the face of danger, and the moments that forever changed the course. Buy tickets now at themoth.org slash virtual mainstage. PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jay Allison, producer of this radio show. And in this hour from the Players in New York City, we bring you a live Moth event presented in collaboration with the World Science Festival. The theme of the evening was Mercury Rising. Our first storyteller is Dr. Wendy Suzuki. Good evening, everybody. So excited to be here. Long before I ever wanted to be a neuroscientist, I wanted to be a Broadway star. <laughs> I thought the people that could sing and dance and act all at the same time were the most talented people in the world. But you have to remember that I came from a very serious Japanese-American family. My grandfather came from Japan in 1910, and he started the largest Japanese language school in all of the West Coast. So our family was serious about education. We were very pleasant, very polite, but never overly affectionate. So you can think of us like a Japanese-American version of Downton Abbey, without the <laughs> accent, the servants, or the real estate. That was us. So despite those early Broadway dreams, I quickly and easily fell into a life of total science geekdom. And after a while, I decided to follow those science geekdom dreams to UC Berkeley, my family's alma mater. And so mom and dad packed me up in the car and drove me to UC Berkeley. And again, Downton Abbey, we didn't hug, we just waved goodbye. Bye, mom and dad. And soon after I arrived at UC Berkeley, I found the perfect outlet for my science geekiness. And that was a class that I took at UC Berkeley called The Brain and Its Potential, taught by Marion Diamond. I'll never forget that very first day of class. She looked like a 50s Hollywood movie star. She had blonde bouffant hair. Um, she was wearing a beautiful skirt and blouse with a crisp white lab coat covering it. And not only that, she had a hat box with her in front of that classroom. And what she did, she slowly opened that lid and very carefully, she pulled out a real human brain. <laughs> I had never seen one before in my life. And she told us that what she was holding in her hands was the most complex structure known to mankind. This is a structure that defined our personalities and allows us to go from laughing to crying in one minute or one second. Not only that, she told us one of the most amazing things about the brain is that it could change in response to the environment. That is, the environment could change the brain's anatomy, physiology, and function. And that was called brain plasticity. And when she said that, that's the moment I realized that I wanted to be a neuroscientist. Now, during this time in college, I was your typical I don't need your help, mom and dad. I can do everything on my own. And despite the fact that I only lived an hour away, I only went home at Christmas and we only kind of called each other. I only called them at most once every three months. I was busy. I was busy learning how to be a neuroscientist. There's a lot to learn. And one form of brain plasticity that I became fascinated with was memory. How did the brain allow us to take a sensory perception and let us remember that for 20, 30, 40 years, a whole lifetime? I studied the anatomy of the brain areas important for memory. I studied the physiology of the patterns of neural activity. I wanted to understand the neural code underlying memory function. I became an expert in long-term memory and fascinated with all those mechanistic details. But then one day, I was sitting at my breakfast table, and I know it was a Wednesday morning because I was reading the 
the Wednesday food section of the New York Times, which is my very favorite section. And I was excited to see an article about Thomas Keller. And um, he's the famous chef that owns Per Se and, and um, the French Laundry. And I was really looking forward to an article about special butter or unusual speckled eggs that he uses in his dishes. But I was really surprised to find um, a very touching article about his relationship with his father that happened late in life and they got very close and in the end the father died of a tragic car accident and I was almost in tears at this point. But then they described a quote that Thomas Keller gave in which he said, at the end of the day, all we really have is our memories. And I realized at that moment that I'd spent so much time focusing on the mechanisms and the mechanics and the anatomy of memory that I hadn't really given a lot of thought to how deep and emotional memories were in our lives. Well, sometime later, I got a call from my mother. And she told me that um, my dad wasn't feeling well. And not only that, that when he was driving around, he couldn't remember how to get to the 7-Eleven where he had been um, buying his morning coffee for the last 30 years. That was very scary. And so the first thing I did is I called my colleagues at Stanford University and got him the best neurologist that I could find. But during all of this process, I couldn't help but feel so guilty. I was an expert on long-term memory. I knew everything about the anatomy and physiology, but I couldn't do one thing to cure my father's memory problems. Well, during this time, uh, my relationship with my parents had gotten closer. I would call them religiously every Sunday. I would first talk to my mom, and then I'd talk to my dad. But I knew after this happened that I wanted to shake things up. I wanted to change the culture of my family. And, you know, we knew, my brother and I always knew that my parents loved us, despite the fact that we never said those three words to each other as adults. I love you. Remember, this is Downton Abbey, not Brady Bunch. <laughs> and so I realized that I wanted to start saying these words, I love you, to my parents. But it was a little bit weird. We'd never said it before, so I couldn't just suddenly start saying it. I realized that on one of our Sunday calls, I would actually have to ask them, would it would it be okay if we started saying this? Which is very, very awkward. I'm an, I'm an adult. I have to ask my parents permission to say I love you, but, but that's what I had to do. And I was feeling very uncomfortable about this, and, and I realized I was feeling more than uncomfortable. I was feeling scared because I was worried that they would say, no, I, I'm not comfortable saying that. I really don't want to say that, and that would make me feel so bad. But I knew the only way to find out what they would say is to ask them. So I gathered up all my courage and I called mom on Sunday night. And my, my mantra was, keep it light. So talk to mom and dad, how you doing? Here's my week, how was your week? And sometime during the conversation, I said, hey mom, you know, we never say I love you. What do you think about the idea of starting to say that when we talk to each other? What do you think? And, and she paused. And my stomach went from down here all the way up to my throat. And she paused. And then she said, I think that's a great idea. And I went, oh, thank God. OK, so we finished up our conversation. But then the tension started rising again because it's one thing to agree to say I love you and it's another thing to actually say I love you. So we both knew we were getting to that part of the conversation where we had to say it to each other. And we were kind of circling each other, not sure what to do. And it was my, it was my responsibility. I was the one with the idea. I took the bull by the horns and I said, Okay, like, get ready. <laughs> I love you. And she said, I love you too. And we both went, oh my God, thank God that's over. <laughs> it's so hard. But we made it through. We made it through. And because that went 
so successfully, I wasn't worried about my dad at all. I knew he would say yes. I asked my dad, he said yes. We did our awkward I love yous and the phone call was over. That was so great. But I have to say that after I got off that call, I broke down in tears. It was so emotional to actually have said that. And it was so emotional to know that I, I had actually changed the culture of my family that night. So the next week I called, and you'll be happy to know that my I love you with my mom got ever so much less awkward that next week. So we're doing really well, we're, we're working it out. And then I start talking to my dad, and I realized that he might not remember that we hadn't made this agreement last week, so I was ready to remind him. <laughs> but you know something, um, that week, he said, I love you first. And he said, he has said, I love you first every single week after that. And you have to remember that my dad, sometimes he can't quite remember whether I'm visiting for Thanksgiving or Christmas. But somehow he was able to make this memory work. And guess what? I know why, because I'm a neuroscientist. <laughs> and I know, I know that emotional resonance is helpful for memories. It really pushes those memories into our long-term memory. So the beautiful emotion of his daughter asking him whether she can say, I love you to him, it beat dementia and it allowed him to form a new memory. And you can be sure that I will keep that memory for the rest of my life. And now that is why I study memory. Dr. Wendy Suzuki is a professor of neuroscience and psychology at New York University. Her research focuses on how our brains retain long-term memories and the effects of exercise on our cognitive abilities. We'll be back in a moment with more stories from this live event in New York City. Malt Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jay Allison. You're listening to a live Moth event held in New York City with the theme Mercury Rising. Our next story is from Brian Hecht. My bar mitzvah was March 17th, 1984, St. Patrick's Day. Now, my actual birthday was in December of 83, three and a half months earlier, but there was enormous demand for bar mitzvah slots in December, so mine got pushed till March. Now, bar mitzvahs in my town were a competitive sport. This was the days before people hired Elton John to play at a bar mitzvah, but for the 1980s, it was pretty intense. I mean, the, the themes escalated from Star Trek to Star Wars to a circus theme that involved hiring an entire actual circus. And my friends and I, we just kind of stumbled from one bar mitzvah to the next every single weekend to a weekend. We were just dimly aware that the enormous expense that our families had gone through to provide us with these special days. Now, being in March, my bar mitzvah was at the very end of all this, so I needed to make sure that the bar mitzvah season went out with a bang. <laughs> now, I wasn't going to have the most expensive bar mitzvah, but I was going to have the most fabulous. <laughs> now, my parents are not religious, and they don't have money, and they're not interested in impressing the neighbors. So when I raised the topic of having this fabulous bar mitzvah, they were having none of it. We have another idea, they said. Something classy. After the synagogue, we're going to have a luncheon at the Swan Club. Now, the Swan Club is a very nice venue. It's still there. It features a, a pond with a variety of swans. And, and they said, you know, we'll invite the aunts, the uncles, the grandparents, maybe a few neighbors. And then they told me that I could invite one friend. <laughs> 
one friend. And uh, they said, you know, you have a lot of friends, more than one, and it starts to get competitive. So uh, this was offensive to me. Uh, so I protested, and we went back and forth and back and forth, and finally we arrived at a negotiated settlement that we'd do the synagogue, we'd do the swan club, and then the next week, the Saturday night after the bar mitzvah, I would have a blowout party with only my friends at my house with whatever I wanted. Well, <laughs> planning this party was the most exciting thing I had ever done. And when I hit up against a budget constraint, it only made me more creative. I mean, we couldn't afford a Pac-Man machine like my friends, but we tracked down this vintage, vintage pinball machine for a quarter of the price. And you know, we couldn't afford a band, it was just a DJ, but we interviewed a bunch and I found the single coolest DJ in all of Nassau County, <laughs> DJ Wayne. <laughs> And Wayne was so cool. I mean, he wouldn't be caught dead playing cool in the gang, celebrate good times, come on. That would be anathema to him. But then I needed one more thing. I needed a piece de resistance. So what's the one thing that 13-year-old boys admire more than anything else in the world, especially in 1984? Breakdancers. So I pulled some strings with DJ Wayne. And he happened to know a couple of real, live, professional, authentic breakdancers who were going to come and dance in my living room. Because with this party, I needed to look not just not poor, I needed to look awesome. So I took care of everything so that nothing could go wrong, except for one thing. My brother Daniel was born four years after me. And this was the early 1970s when modern science and medicine had perfected the care and feeding and immunization of newborn babies. And Daniel was born a perfectly healthy baby boy, but he had a bad reaction to one of these immunizations and he had a grand mal seizure. And if you're not familiar with seizures, that's the really bad kind where you go unconscious, you fall on the ground, you shake uncontrollably violently, you make terrible noises. So Daniel had this one seizure and then he had a second and a third, and there was a frenzy of diagnoses and treatments, and it was decided that this probably wasn't a one-off thing for Daniel. This is probably something he'd be living with for a very long time. And when this was all explained to me in the later years, I, I could not believe this enormous failure of science and medicine. I mean, uh, I, I know nowadays there's this enormous controversy about immunization. I'm not against immunization. I'm pro-immunization. But, I mean, this wasn't about that. This was about a human being. I mean, my baby brother had been brought into a doctor's office perfectly healthy, and he walked out what, in the crude language of the 1970s, could only be called epileptic and mentally retarded. Now, as the years went on, Daniel did not get any better. In fact, he got worse. The seizures continued, and they were so bad that he had to sleep in a bed in my parents' bedroom. And he developed a beautiful personality. He could talk a little. He could walk a little. Um, he would learn your name. When you walk into the room, he would smile and give you a big hug. But in the end, he never really passed the mental age of a two or a three-year-old. And because of these seizures, I mean, my life was one of little emergencies. I'd be sleeping in my bed age six or seven. I'd hear but the terrible, violent sounds of a seizure in the next room. And I'd be airlifted out of my bed and taken to the hospital with them and left to spend the night in a smoky ER waiting room. Or I'd be transported for two or three weeks at a time to a relative's house while they took Daniel to find new treatments and new medications in a hospital somewhere far away. And this was a crazy life. I mean, it was chaotic, but you know, it was the only thing I'd ever known, so it seemed normal to me. I guess except for this one time when I was spending the night in the hospital waiting room one of those times, and usually my dad would come out once an hour and check on me, make sure I was okay, he'd buy me a treat from the vending machine, a root beer. And then this one time he didn't come out and I was worried, so I crept around those swinging hospital doors, the ones you're not supposed to go through, and I peeked around the corner and I saw my mother in a payphone booth talking on the phone and crying. And I realized that things were not normal. This all was not 
okay, her heart was broken. And seeing that, my heart was broken too. And I realized it's also okay to not just acknowledge the enormous tragedy of this event for Daniel's life, but to think about the impact it has on other people. I mean, it affected my mother, it affects my father, it affects me, it affected everything we did every single day. And of course, it affects my bar mitzvah. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, anything could happen. He's gonna be sleeping upstairs the entire time. He could have a seizure, there would be a 911 call, there would be ambulance lights and sirens, probably Daniel being brought down in a stretcher through the middle of the party. The party would be over. My bar mitzvah would be over. And this may sound selfish, but remember, I was a 13-year-old boy. And for 10 years, my entire conscious life, I had lived with this chaos, this complete lack of control. And all I wanted was for one night to go just right. One night that was just for me. So I planned everything. Now, bar mitzvahs, you may know, are supposed to be your passage into manhood. So on the day of the bar mitzvah, I decided to do something very grown up and take a nap to rest up. <laughs> now, my friend had brought me back from Thailand, this blue silken shorty robe with a red dragon embroidered on the back. So I decided to take my nap wearing this shorty robe and nothing underneath. So after I woke up from my very manly and slightly risque nap, I was rested and ready to go. I put on my bar mitzvah outfit. I went right downstairs. My friends were already trickling in. They were met at the door by my aunt who was handing out canapes fresh from the supermarket freezer aisle via my oven. <laughs> and DJ Wayne, he of course was the master of ceremonies. He ran the games. We had the limbo. Everyone loved it. When someone won a prize, they went up and they got to pick a button. You know, those little pins we had with the obnoxious sayings on them. And my mom and I had bought them at the mall at that store with the black light and the heavy metal t-shirts. <laughs> and DJ Wayne, I mean, I completely trusted his professionalism, but I was a pop music psycho and I left nothing to chance. So a few weeks earlier, I had gone to the public library and I sought out copies of Billboard magazine and they were so precious they didn't let them circulate. So I brought a pocket full of change that was probably my entire life savings at the time and I photocopied the pages that had the top 40 on it and I circled the songs that DJ Wayne must play and X'd out the song that DJ Wayne was forbidden from playing. And let me tell you, the third week of March 1984 was the golden age of 1980s pop music. I mean, we had 99 Luftballons by Nana. We had Cyndi Lauper, Girls Just Wanna Have Fun, we had Culture Club, Karma Chameleon, and in the ultimate testament to my music selection skills, for the first time in the bar mitzvah season, 13-year-old boys and girls were dancing together. <laughs> but then the music stopped, and DJ Wayne flipped the disc, and he put on what, in 1984, passed for hip-hop. And out they came, <laughs> strutting confidently, the breakdancers. Head to toe in gray sweats, sweatshirts, gray sweatpants, high top sneakers, baseball caps backwards, tilted jauntily to the side. Without emotion, they went right into their moves. They did the robot, they did the worm, they did the head spins. They did that thing where you twirl around on your feet like you're a crab and then spin around on your back and end in that model prose. <laughs> the boys were in awe. The girls were swooning. I was swooning. It was the gayest bar mitzvah ever. <laughs> and it was the greatest night of my life because I had controlled everything. I picked the music, I picked the dancers, I even picked the cold cuts. And Daniel, Daniel was just fine. Daniel had slept through the entire night. Now, it's been about 30 years since that bar mitzvah and I've tried to capture the spirit of it in everything that I've done. After college, I, uh, I, I tried taking a few regular jobs and it wasn't for me, so I decided to become an entrepreneur. Uh, and each one of the little companies that I start is like a little bar mitzvah. And I, and I come up with these ideas and they're creative and I can do them on no money and I, I drag along people to help me and I, I'm the guy who like takes care of every detail and it's you know, totally under control and I drive people crazy. 
And that's professional in my personal life too. I mean, when I came out of the closet, it wasn't just to get laid or to be true to myself. It was so that I could control what people knew about me and when they knew it. And when all this works, it's this incredible triumph and it's my triumph. And even when it fails, at least it's my failure. Now Daniel is going to be 40 in a few months. And he's doing okay. He loves playing with his iPad. And my parents are around 70. And he still sleeps in their bedroom. And I can only imagine what it must be like to be 70 years old and to have your adult son having slept in your bedroom for the past 39 years. They still go to the hospital in the middle of the night. And sometimes I get that call. Brian, we're in the intensive care unit. And I go to them, and I'm glad that I can be of some comfort as an adult rather than just a kid waiting, sleeping in the waiting room. But one day, I am going to get a different call from my parents, and there will be a discussion, and it will be decided that they can no longer take care of Daniel. And then he will be my responsibility. He will be mine. And I don't know what I'm going to do then. I mean, maybe he'll come live with me the way he lived with my parents, or maybe I'll find a loving home for him where he can live as an adult with other adults. What I do know is that this sense of control that I've cultivated my entire life, it has an expiration date. There are bookends here. March 17, 1984, I claimed control of my life. And when that phone call comes, hopefully many years from now, but maybe later tonight, I'm going to surrender it. That was Brian Hecht. Brian is a serial entrepreneur and a veteran of many startups in the digital media space. Our next story at this live event in New York City comes from archaeologist Hannah Morris. Now, I am the daughter of a geologist, and what this means is that I grew up on bedtime stories of peak oil and environmental catastrophe. <laughs> now, we also did some fun stuff when I was a kid, like collecting fossils, but a running theme throughout my childhood was sitting outside with my dad and talking about big oil and pollution and global warming. Yes, I was that kid. Um, really, I can't remember a time when I didn't know what these things were. Now, as I got older, I found that I wasn't scared of the dark anymore, but I had this knowledge about climate change, just a little bit of knowledge, and it became this big monster that lived underneath my bed. And I had a very particular response to it. I call it worrying out of the corner of your eye. And it's this mixture of fear and anxiety that is so strong that you're compelled to worry about this thing. But at the same time, it's so scary that you can barely stand to really look at it. Now, one night when I was about 16, I was outside on my parents' porch, and I just finished a paper about global warming for a science class. I'd wanted to learn more about this topic and just kind of peek underneath the covers. So I'd read about chlorofluorocarbons and the greenhouse effect, and I'm sitting outside, and there's this warm breeze coming down off the mountain, and I can hear frogs and crickets and the creek rushing by. And I suddenly have this intense moment of fear that one day there will be no more beautiful nights like this. Now, at this time, I had no idea how to handle that type of emotion, and the only thing I could think to do was to ignore it and try and distract myself from it. Now, at 16, this was not incredibly difficult. And a few months later, I was tagging along on my dad's geology class to Wyoming. We got to spend a day out on a dinosaur dig. And we were out in the middle of nowhere. We were on the side of this hill, and we were picking away at these little pieces of bone and squirting them with the solution to harden them. And I just get lost in this. I'm loving every single second of it. Now, as the day is ending, the students are tired and hungry, and they're making their way back to the vans, and they're going to leave me. <laughs> and I decide that I'm just going to keep working. And I took my dad coming over to me and physically placing his hands on me to drag me away from the site. 
Now, a little while later, I was in college, and I took an anthropology course. And one day, the professor starts talking about archaeology. And as he's describing what archaeologists actually do, which is nothing like Indiana Jones, for the record, I have to say that, um, <laughs> I realized that it's pretty much just what I was doing in Wyoming, except instead of dinosaurs, I would get to dig up people. And it's very apparent to me that people are much more interesting than dinosaurs. So in the span of about five or ten minutes, I just decide that I'm going to become an archaeologist and spend the rest of my life playing in the dirt. Now, one of my first jobs was actually working for the American Museum of Natural History on St. Catharines Island, Georgia, which is a barrier island off the coast of Georgia. Now, I never knew that you can fall in love with a place the exact same way that you can fall in love with a person. The first time that I arrived on the island, it was late summer, the time of year when the gnats are trying to eat you alive, and it's been way too hot for way too long. When I stepped off that boat onto the island, it felt like I was stepping into the world as I always hoped it would be. There were these huge live oak trees with these long, graceful limbs that were covered in Spanish moss and resurrection ferns. By that time of year, this plant called dog fennel is blooming, and it has this nice, light, green, earthy scent. And then, of course, there's the sunsets and the marsh and this beautiful language that they have to describe the different kinds of tides. A neap tide, ebb tide, my favorite, a sparrow tide. So before I knew it in this kind of quick and breathless lay, I was just in love with this place. Now, St. Catharines is not just a beautiful island, but it's a place where amazing research happens. There are people who work on everything from sea turtles to birds to geology and, of course, archaeology. The island has been occupied by people for about 4,000 years, and one of the most interesting sites is a 16th century Spanish mission. Now, over the course of the history of this mission, there was a rebellion, and it was destroyed and then rebuilt, and eventually 432 people would be buried in the floor of this church. Now, I worked on archaeological sites on St. Catharines for a couple of years, and then I took a break to do my master's. When I came back to the island in 2012, there was something different. Suddenly, it seemed like the words climate change and global warming were coming out of everyone's mouth. Everywhere you went on the island, you could see evidence of these forces, and every year you could see more and more. One day I went down to the very southern tip of the island, to a place called Jungle Beach. And as I came around the last corner, I had to stop my truck because I was literally about to drive into the ocean. And I got out to watch the waves wash up into what had been the road, and I felt that same sense of fear that I'd felt at 16 out on my parents' porch. Except this time it was very real. I could see this one spot where I'd camped underneath these two palm trees, and that was now underwater, and those palm trees were gone. So the island as a whole is experiencing these somewhat traumatic effects, um, and this is impacting the archaeological sites as well. When I came back, we had a new protocol in place. We call it archaeological triage. Basically, that means we work on the most vulnerable and important sites before they're destroyed. And in fact, the 16th century Spanish mission, the Mission Santa Catalina de Wale, is exactly this type of site. It's located on the western edge of the island, and there's this tidal creek that runs along the bluff. And every single day, with every tide, this creek inches closer and closer to this church where 432 people are buried. So a few times a year, we go down to excavate and document this area. Now, we've learned that because you can't stop the tides, you have to work harder and work longer to try and outrun them. One night last September, I found myself knee-deep in water, covered in sand, holding a floodlight. And we were working into the night because we didn't know what would be left of this site in the morning when the tide went out. Like any research project, we only have so much time and money. And we had been counting down not the days we had left on this dig, but the tides. We have three tides left. We have two tides left. And this night, we had no tides left. This was it. The monster was in the water with me that night. It was coming in with this tide and swimming around my feet. And it was telling me exactly what the consequences of climate change would be. 
Now I rode home that night on a cooler in the back of the truck and I was tired and I was scared and I was very sad. And I knew that I had done things in my life that had directly contributed to what was happening to this island and what was happening around the world. I mean, I was riding home from sight in the back of a gasoline-powered pickup truck, and that irony is not lost on me. But we came through this one area where the dog fennel grows really high on either side of the road, and I could see this mist rising up from the ground, and there was moonlight and starlight coming down through the trees. And I felt all of those emotions kind of settle within me, just looking at the beauty of this place. And I realized that I could survive all of that, that I could survive this fear. Ignoring it had once felt like the only way that I could be in the world and love the world. But I'm no longer a child, and that's no longer possible. Now, the erosion on the island will continue, and it will probably get worse. Today, the erosion is threatening the 16th century Spanish mission, but in the future, it could threaten the houses that we live in when we go down to work on the island. For me personally, this means that I'll continue to go down every chance I get to try and save this site and to try and really understand this monster that we've created. It means that I'll probably be going back to graduate school, which is something that I never thought I would say. Uh, talk about monsters. <laughs> um, and it means I'll be getting to know this monster very intimately and probably wrestling with it for the rest of my life. Thank you. That was Hannah Morris. Hannah is an archaeologist studying how humans and plants interacted in the past. We'll be back in a moment with our final story from this live event in New York City. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jay Allison, producer of this radio show. You're listening to a live moth event in New York City held in partnership with the World Science Festival. Our final storyteller this hour is Dr. Mary Claire King. The week of April Fool's Day of 1981 began badly. (laughs) That Sunday night, my husband told me he was leaving me. He had fallen in love with one of his graduate students, and they were headed back to the tropics the next day. I was completely devastated. It was totally unexpected. 33 years later, I still don't know what to say about it. I was just beside myself. He gave me a new vacuum cleaner to soften the blow. (laughs) It was, of course, the middle of spring quarter at Berkeley, so the next morning I had my class as usual, and I had to either go teach it or explain why not. It's far easier to go teach it. So I dropped off Emily, who was five and three quarters at the time, at kindergarten, along with her faithful Aussie, her Australian shepherd who went everywhere with her. Headed down to school, taught my class. And I was leaving my class, must have been around 9.30, and my department chairman caught up with me and he said, come into my office. I said, fine, and I had hoped to escape. Went into his office and he said, I just wanted to tell you, I've just learned you've been awarded tenure. (laughs) And of course I burst into tears. Now, this department chairman, bless him, was a gentleman a full generation older than me. He had three grown sons. He had no daughters. He had certainly never had a young woman assistant professor in his charge before. And he took my shoulders, and he stepped back, and he said, no one's ever reacted like that before. (laughs) And he said, sit down, sit down. He said, what's the matter? And I said, it's not the tenure, it's not the tenure, it's it's that my husband told me last night he was leaving me. 
And he looked at me, and he opened the drawer of his desk. He pulls out this huge bottle of Jack Daniels. <laughs> pours me a half a glass of it. said, drink this, you'll feel better. <laughs> Monday morning at Berkeley. <laughs> so I did, and I did. <laughs> so I made it through the day, got sober, <laughs> and around 3.30, headed back up the hill to pick up Emily at the end of school, and did so, and we, she hopped in the car, and Ernie, hop, Ernie, her dog, hopped in the car, and we drove the rest of the way home. Got home, walked up the stairs to the house, opened the house, and it was absolute chaos. Someone had broken in. Everything was completely trashed. And in retrospect, what must have happened, my, my then-husband had often worked at home, and whoever had been casing the neighborhood must have left our house Side because he was often there and he was unpredictably there at different times. But that day, of course, he hadn't been there and we were vulnerable and we were robbed. So I called 911 and a young Berkeley police officer came up and went through the house. And of course, I had no idea what had been taken and what hadn't because my husband had actually taken many, many things with him Sunday night and I wasn't sure what should still be there or not. And I explained that to Officer Rodriguez, and, and he said, as you, as you figure it out, make a list. And then he went upstairs with Emily to her room, and they opened the door of her room, and it, it 18 inches deep of just chaos. It, it, the, the bed had been pulled apart, curtains pulled down, drawers all dumped out. Emily, five and three quarters, looked at Officer Rodriguez and said, I can't tell if the burglars were in here or not. <laughs> Officer Rodriguez, to his eternal credit, did not crack a smile. He handed her his card and said, young lady, if you discover that anything is missing, please give me a call. So now we're at Monday night. I was scheduled later that week to give a presentation in Washington, D.C. to the National Institutes of Health. And the way this worked in those days was if you were a young, a young professor and you were applying for the first time for a large grant, you were quite frequently asked to come back to NIH and give what was called a reverse site visit, basically explain what you planned to do, and then it would be decided if you were going to get what in my case was quite a substantial amount of money for the time, over five years. And it was, it was terribly important. I mean, I had not done this before. It was brand new. It was going to be my first large grant on my own. The plan had been for Emily to stay with her dad and, and for my mom to come out, arriving the next day, Tuesday, and to help out. And that had seemed, of course, at the time, like a great plan. Obviously, my mom, didn't, who was living in Chicago, didn't know anything about the events of the previous 24 hours, so I thought, I'll just, I'll just wait and explain to her when she gets here. It seemed far better than calling her what by now was you know, quite late in Chicago. Um, because of all the business with the burglary and the police and all that. So the next day we picked up my mom at San Francisco airport and driving back to Berkeley, I explained to her what had happened on Sunday. And she, she was very, very upset. She said, I can't believe you've let this family come apart. I can't believe this child will grow up without a father, which was never true and has never been true since. How could you do this? How could you not put your family first? How could, and Emily is sitting there in the car. And I just cannot imagine. I'm going to go talk to Rob. And I said, he's back in Costa Rica. I'm, this just can't be. And, and she became more and more and more agitated. And by the time we got home to Berkeley, she was extremely agitated. Emily was terrified. And it was clearly not going to work for her to care for Emily. And after a couple of hours, my, my mom said, I'm, I'm going home. I just can't imagine that this has happened. You, you must stay here and take care of your child. You can't imagine, how can you even think of being, running off to the East Coast at a time like this? Um, so to put it into context now, 33 years later, my father had died less than a year before. And just two months after this, my mother was diagnosed with epilepsy. So in context, it was not as irrational as it seemed at the time. But at the time, of course, it was devastating. <laughs> so I said, OK, you're right. You should go home. 
and I'll arrange for you to have a ticket to go home tomorrow. We'll take you out to the airport, and I'll cancel the trip. So I called my mentor, who had, who had been my postdoc advisor at UC San Francisco until just a couple of years before, and said, and he was already in Washington, D.C. by happenstance at an oncology meeting. And I said, I'm not going to be able to come. And I explained briefly what had happened. Of course, he knew me well. And he just listened to all this. He had grown daughters and said, look, come. And I said, I can't. And he said, bring Emily. He said, Emily and I know each other. I'll sit with her while you're giving your presentation. He, he had grandchildren of his own. He said, it will be fine. I said, she doesn't have a ticket. He said, as soon as we hang up the phone, I'm going to call the airline and get her a ticket, pick up the ticket at the airport tomorrow when you take your mom back. It'll be on the same flight as yours. Everything will be fine. And I said, you sure? And he said, yes. I have to call the airline now. Good night. He hung up. So I got, in those days, it was very easy to rearrange tickets. I arranged, <laughs> I, I arranged for my mother to have the ticket to go back to Chicago. And if I remember correctly, her flight was, as it were, at 10 o'clock in the morning. So we left Berkeley in plenty of time, in principle, to get to San Francisco Airport. And of course, it was one of those days that the Bay Bridge was just totally locked up. It was just a horrible, horrible drive across. And what should have been a drive of 45 minutes, an hour and 45 minutes to get there. So my mom's flight was about to leave in 15 minutes, and, and Emily's and my flight was about to leave in 45 minutes, and the line to pick up tickets, which I had mine, but of course I needed to pick up hers, was long, 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 long. And of course we had our suitcases, my mom had her suitcase, and my mom was already fairly frail. So Emily and my mother and I were standing in the line, and I said, Mom, can you make it? down to your plane on your own. Bear in mind, there's no security in these days. There's, but there, of course, are very long quarters. And she said, no. <laughs> so I said to Emily, um, I'm going to need to go with Grandma down to her plane. And my mother shrieked. I'm not going to scream into the mic. She shrieked, you can't leave that child here alone. And you know, fair enough. And this. <laughs> And this unmistakable voice above and behind me said, Emily and I will be fine. And I turned around and I said, thank you. And my mother looked at me and said, you can't leave Emily with a total stranger. And I said, mom, if you can't trust Joe DiMaggio, who? <laughs> Can you trust? <laughs> Joe DiMaggio looked at me, looked at my mother, gave Emily a huge grin, put out his hand and said, Hi, Emily, I'm Joe. <laughs> and Emily shook his hand and she said, Hello, Joe. I'm Emily. And I said, Mom, let's go. So we headed down the hall. I got my mother to the plane. She got on the plane fine. I got back. It was probably 20, 25 minutes by the time I got back. And by that time, Emily and Joe were all the way up at the front, chatting with each other by the counter. Joe DiMaggio had wrangled Emily's ticket for her. She was holding her ticket. <coughs> he was clearly waiting to get to his plane until I got back. So I looked at him, and I said, thank you very much. And he said, my pleasure. He headed off down the hall. He turned right. He gave me this huge salute and wave and a <laughs> tremendous grin and went off to his own plane. Oh, wow. Emily and I went to Washington, DC. The interview went fine. I got the grant, and that was the beginning of the grant that now 33 years later has become the story of inherited breast cancer and the beginning of the project that became BRCA1. Thanks. Dr. Mary Claire King 
is American Cancer Society professor in the Department of Medicine and the Department of Genome Sciences at the University of Washington in Seattle. She was the first to show that breast cancer is inherited in some families as the result of mutations in the gene that she named BRCA1. That's it for this live episode of the Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next time. That's the story from the Moth. This live Moth show was produced in collaboration with the World Science Festival. The stories were directed by Catherine Burns and Meg Bowles. The rest of the Moss directorial staff includes Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, and Jennifer Hickson, with production support from Whitney Jones and Kaylee Waldman. Moss Stories Are True is remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our theme music is by The Drift, other music in this hour from Ratatat. The Moth is produced for radio by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This episode was supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information on Sloan at sloan.org. This hour was also produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly Open Mic Story Slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.